0: In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I have a long chat with your own Weitzman, NBA writer for Bleacher Report and author of Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. As you can imagine, we'll spend a lot of time talking about Sam Hinkie, the Sixers rebuild, and how that all came to an end. Today's episode of the Sixers Beat is brought to you by Remarkably Remote. A new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also go to GoToMeeting.com/tips. That's GoToMeeting.com/tips. Alright, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. This time we have not only Rich, but also somebody you have certainly heard here of uh, of late, Own Weitzman from Bleacher Report. Uh, More notably, at least for this podcast, the author of Taking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. How you doing, Rich and Own?
1: Well, everybody Richie. knows how I'm doing. How yeah. is your own doing?
0: Your own is
2: doing okay, I guess. I know, as someone who's in, and we were talking before, someone who's got two kids at home under the age of three and is in a New York City two-bedroom apartment. So life has been better, but I can't complain, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. I've, if all three of us have our health and our immediate loved ones have our health, we'll make true. the rest of it work. But you know, we did. We let we let your own go through his his little book <laughs> tour here. And by little, I mean he's literally on just about every podcast I subscribe to. So if you, you've probably heard some of this, but by the same token, we want to make sure that you have heard it because he wrote a book on the process, on the Sixers Rebuild. If I have to explain to you what the process is, then I I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs>
1: that would be interesting if there was somebody who fell under that category, but- I don't can think I, so.
2: Can I tell you there are so many show, like not like podcasts, but like radio shows and stuff you go on, where like so, so six. What's what was the process? Can you explain that to us, or even like so? What are Sixers fans like? Just these questions, and I literally do not know how to respond in sixty seconds.
1: Well, now you know yeah. how Brett Brown feels when the the local newscaster <laughs> comes in before the playoffs yes. and asks the very general <laughs> That's questions. A great comparison. That
2: is, that is actually fantastic. Yes.
0: <laughs> so. I guess we'll just start off. You sure. were sort of an outsider. Uh, you know, you weren't yes. covering the Sixers before this book. No, y- you came down for that year to get around the team, but beforehand you weren't engulfed in this debate about the rebuild and about the team and about Hinky and Brown and, and Bede and New and Okafor and all of this stuff. So you came in and you-, you basically did a big research project and talked to hundreds of people. What was the one thing that maybe surprised you most that you weren't expecting coming in?
2: Uh, ugh, um, I don't know if this is the right answer just how much can I curse is that okay absolutely of, just uh, go for it just, just how much shit there was like even just like the little things like it just I remember whether it's every one of and I guess you kind of know this but I forgot just whether it's every one of Embiid's knee surgeries you know or it doesn't come back or those mini controversies like the mini controversies the Okafor stuff when was Okafor traded is he not going to be traded and Noel traded just how much stuff which I guess Sixers fans will say duh but you can kind of I don't know like you, I, on the top of the pyramid. You have the Burner Gates and Markel faults, and, you know, Hinky being ousted, right? And you kind of go lower and lower and lower. And yet there's still a lot. There's so many levels and different things that end up like they're not important, but they do matter in the greater picture. So I don't know if that was surprising. Like I was aware of the whole argument, right? The whole some people are for it. Some people are against it. I think more people really for it, and it always kind of seemed like the people against it were more of a. There was more of a straw man type argument sometimes. It seemed like, but I think that would be my answer. Just how much shit there was or shenanigans. I like to use the word shenanigans sometimes when describing this.
0: Okay, you so know, as a, a quick follow up, and then we'll mm-hmm. we'll move on from that. What was the most surprising thing you learned about Sam, who is maybe the most elusive figure? In this whole uh, this whole saga,
2: yeah, it's funny, right? And like, I think it was Howard Beck He he was a great description. I thought I I wish I would have came up with it. He's like Sam's kind of like a shadow in your book, which is true, because I I mean I guess the few people who haven't heard yet, like I did not. I spoke to Sam a couple times, but nothing on the record or not even off the record about, like, actual Sixers process stuff. Um, The most surprising thing I learned, I just found his whole backstory fascinating. Like, you know, we all hear the Silicon Valley, and you see the Silicon Valley look and preaching, and Silicon Valley like preaching, and yet it's a dude from, like, a small town in Oklahoma. And the whole you know i am going to go dark with this but i i don't know i didn't know the story about his brother about his older brother that when he was he gets 10, very
0: protective of that yeah.
2: yeah he doesn't like talking about it, which i mean i understand and it's one of those things where like i and so the story is you know his older brother committed suicide um shot himself when he was Sam was 10 and the brother was i believe 17 um that's one of those things where like i respect that and like i like to say it's my job to write it because of truth and journalism and blah 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 but i mean no, it's my job to write it there's no good reason to do it right like it's not doing anything i guess it's painting a picture more of him but you know i don't have a good excuse why i do it you just do it because it's a fact um yeah how how and i would have loved to know and ask how that affected him because i'm sure it did but just the story of that happening and then that night you know he'd sam gave me an interview, interview once about um how he kind of found solace shooting hoops with his buddy's friend um, and just beneath how, so how beneath all the, you want to call it analytical, analytic, like math, like thinking and preaching, there is this love and sort of belief um, in sports, you know, it's, which sounds kind of corny, but I do think that's there. And that I found interesting and surprising.
1: Yeah. So uh, there were a few things that y- you were saying, like just how much shit there was. And there yeah. were details that, you know, I've covered the team the whole time that you know, that this book has taken place for maybe, maybe not the first year or so, but whatever I've, I've been following them for that amount of time. And there were stuff I just, I forgot. Like I just, I I did not know how I could forget something as big as Julia look for getting a gun pulled on him And right. That's a good, that's a
2: perfect example, right? (laughs) Like That's a perfect example.
1: Like when I read it again in your book, I was like, Oh yeah, I remember we spent a lot of time on that, but it was completely (laughs) out of my head because you know, it was, four years ago. And there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since. So one thing that you touched on a lot in the book, um, despite not having much help from them, obviously was the Sixers ownership. And yes, I think, you know, there was another thing that I forgot. And this goes back to the Bynum trade. I think you you wrote when, when Josh Harris, after that season was over, said I would do that again. And Mm -hmm. I remember at the time Derek and I were saying, you know what, I, I get, like I don't know what to make of Josh Harris, but that makes me more confident in him than, you know, he could have said a lot of things, but I felt pretty good about his explanation there because he was right because the team was not good and they took a swing and it didn't work, but whatever. It's funny that he is now... Punching back. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's uh, pushed back on that. I had a QA and a with him in October and he said, I was like, what would you do differently? and that was the first thing he said i wouldn't have done the Bynum trade and i was thinking like man so much has did changed.
2: did he i missed that quote that's fascinating i think i missed that did he say that that's fa- that's actually that's that's incredible yeah yeah <laughs> and
1: that was another thing i had forgotten i was like i at the time i didn't realize like oh yeah he's completely backtracking on something he said you know after that season ended it it just struck me as just like another example of them not being able to make up their minds on, on what they want. You know, they're all in on the process. They're, they're not, it's a science experiment, blah, blah, Science blah, experiment, blah. exactly <laughs> all that stuff. So I, I guess that's kind of a long winded way to, to introduce it. Despite kind of all of the flip flopping in my estimation, what's the main thing that in your research about this book, you learned about this ownership group? Ooh, um, by the way, I agree with you, and
2: I do think it's funny. So, like, you know, it's easy to beat up on the ownership group, and for good reason, as we just saw recently. Um, they did start – they did get off to a good start, right? The things they decided, like even the buy them trade, like you said, Harris saying that, um, recognizing that the team had sort of plateaued, right? Like, those are all smart moves. Um, yeah, the biggest thing – I just found Josh Harris – and Derek uh, – I tweeted this. Derek used the quote, which I love that quote, and he used it in the recent piece about ownership. I just found Josh Harris's um, – his kind of arc from private equity, kind of passive in a way, owner to I am now basketball guy and I care a lot about this team and care what people say. Right. So Derek's quote was like that. You know, Harris said at Sloan last year, and I remember when he, the second he said it, I knew it was going in the book. Right. That we yeah. own this two billion dollar chemical company and nobody cares, but everybody has an opinion about the Sixers lineup. And I thought that quote was just so telling and representative of what him and other owners. Kind of think they all come in thinking they know, and you know the NBA is different. They don't know; it's a whole different business and a whole different beast. And these guys care what people think, what people think, what people say, no matter what they say. Um, they care a lot about that, and they hear the noise. Um, even this year, didn't Josh Harris this year mention like going on Twitter? Which I don't know. He doesn't have a Twitter account that we know of, does he? But I think at Sloan this year, he said, you know, he goes on Twitter, hears the noise on, sees their things on Twitter, logs on. Um, so I just found that whole narrative just basically the quote from you know when he buys the team. This is a really good business uh, opportunity yep. to now he talks like he's a GM. I just like that he's like talking about why Al Horford and, and Tobias Harris are going to mesh well together, right? <laughs> or like negotiating the Jimmy Butler trade. It's just an incredible transformation. Um, so that's the biggest takeaway I've had that just the idea that this went from a passive group who was looking at it one way and really looking at it Right, that's also the ironic part, right? They were they were really applying the private equity principles, which are not always great, but they were applying those to running the team and those the good like in a good way. And the good the good stuff has sort of gone out the window now, right? They're kind of done with like, the whole process of results and you know all that kind of stuff. That's kind of done now. It's back to it's like you know it's like a fan running a team basically is what it is.
0: Well, you have you have you also then have a a quote in your book, uh, and this is a quote from another book, uh, the Buyout of America.
2: Oh yeah, this is- <laughs>
0: they care about the future of their p e firms, not about the viability of the companies they buy, which I think everybody wants to believe that owning a sports team is different than that. They don't view it as a typical company that they buy, but do you think that they are in this for the profit and because they saw it as distressed? and the sixers, I think at the time that they bought it were the, the lowest valued team in the league, and they saw a league about the jump in profitability. Or do you think they truly care about winning and putting a product on the core that resonates with the fan base? Um, I I, I ask you this because I think you've now probably written the most extensive bit and done the most research about this ownership group of, of maybe anyone
2: no I think I think it evolved but right? I think at first it was more of the you know own, like own a team they wanted to win these guys are competitive and like if you talk to people about Josh Harris he's certainly competitive like even in the um, I love this story someone told me a story like in, in let's say Apollo the private equity firm they have like full group, you know company soccer games and like there's a story about Harris like running over an intern like trying to win or something <laughs> Which was um, that intern?
1: right right <laughs> Is the, <laughs> How is the wrestler on the field man? or not? By the way, for that,
2: <laughs> I believe on the field. That's a good question, actually. Um, that was, you know, then then he asked for a twenty percent pay cut. No, um, so, uh, so um, no, I think that evolved, right? I really, my read on it is that I think they like being. Like, I think they like going to Sloan. I, lo- I love Sloan as a, kind of a backdrop to this, but, like, I think they like going to Sloan and parading don't around Sloan. Don't you just Sloan. love
0: that the people from the Sixers that talk at Sloan, though, are yes. Josh Harris and Scott O'Neill? Scott O'Neill, right. Year. And they no- love nobody it. Nobody in the analytics department, nobody in that realm, but it's Scott O'Neill and Josh Harris.
2: No, and I think they love Don't you think they love it? Like, I think, like, otherwise, like, again, go back to that quote, do we care about Josh Harris now? And again, I don't get why, like... I don't know. These guys can get away with a lot more outside of sports. It seems like than they can in, right? So, like that twenty percent, like trying sure. to get your salaries, your employees to take a twenty percent pay cut. Um, if you're running, I don't know. If you're if you're Apollo and you buy Hostess, I mean that was a company they bought before, but whatever. And you know, you ask them to take twenty percent. They get in a new cycle, maybe for ten minutes, and like there's nothing. There's nothing happens. It stays, right? There's no backlash the same way, um, or there's no mo- there's no mobilization of the backlash, I should say, right? Um, so no, but i I think they enjoy like I think they enjoy being i'll say important and use air quotes, right. I think that's part of it. I think that matters to them, um, so I think at first, it was certainly a business opportunity. Um, I don't know again, these guys like dollar and cents come in a lot, and these guys do care about money, and at some point, maybe the values matter um, but i i I don't see them say, i'm making I'm not reporting it i just I, I feel like they're gonna hold on to the team for a bit here.
1: I do remember after a game. Like, Josh Harris was in Brett Brett Brown's press conference. Yes, right? I think it was the game, it was this season. It wasn't, like, that important of a game. I think it was the the Pacers game where Ben Simmons stole the ball three times at the end of the game and won. And afterwards, I think he had one of his kids just sitting there, and he was, like, looking around, like, this is so much fun or something like that. And, you know, to be fair, like, I I don't know what to make of that. He could just be putting on a show or whatever, but he kind of seemed like he actually was really into it, which... I guess in some cases is admirable, but you know, to go back to him kind of resting more control as this has gone along, like, I think he saw that the best years and the best kind of run years of the Sixers were when he was hands off. And that's the way I think most ownership GM structures that are really successful. That's, that's how it works. So yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I I wonder why he has taken more control as it's gone along. Like, Is it just I'd, that he loves it, or has it just been all of the crazy stuff that's happened? Or I think that plays a role. I always feel
2: like, I think it's both he likes. I do think it's like, okay, the hinky thing came out, Colangelo's, that blew up. Okay, nah, I'll do it now, right? I do think there's some part of that. Yeah. Um, like I always reference, like again, it doesn't matter, but it does matter. The Sixers really care about their org charts. Like they really care. Like some teams don't. They really care, and they don't have a president of basketball operations, right? Hinkie and Brian Colangelo were. Um, Elton Brand is not. He's just a GM. Um, and like it's like those little things that I find telling. It just kind of, it's kind of. I feel like Sam was out, then Jerry's in, and then Brian's in. Then once Brian and Jerry out, there's sort of this power vacuum. Um. You know, I go back even to this, like, again, I don't know this Just connecting dots. Like, no, I'm not, no one's told me this, but I always have felt like the David Heller being, you know, leaving was part of that, that like, if you're. I, I, I the way I guessed it is that he was sort of playing GM a little bit right before mm-hmm. that's the fun part, um, which that part's not guessing that part we know, um, but suddenly if the owner is saying Nah, I, I'm I got it, don't worry, like why there's no need for him anymore, right? Why is he going to want to stay? And I kind of assume that contributed to him being bought out or him leaving. Um, again, well, that's just dot connecting, but that's you know just it's just kind of look reading the tea leaves out there.
0: That was going to be my next question because whenever you talk about this ownership group, you hear, you hear three names: uh, Josh Harris. And David Blitzer, mm-hmm. which I thought you had a real interesting nugget in there that at one point they were supposed to yeah. swap. Yes. He was the managing partner, and they weren't allowed to because of what uh, I think uh, Blackstone didn't want. Black,
2: them is it Blitzer, to he's Blackstone, right? Yeah, they right. didn't, they wouldn't let him. That was my, that was what I was told. To yeah.
0: And then the third name in that ownership group that you always hear is David Heller. Mm-hmm. And in the early parts, it sounded like he was, and it's sort of like you know what I've been hearing on the side. Early parts of the ownership group, he was real involved. Then he sort of backed off a little bit. Then he became real involved again once Colangelo left. Yep. And then eventually he was bought out. Yep. So I guess what can you tell me about him and his evolving role and whether or not you have any insight on why he eventually then sold his shares and, and, and moved on?
2: No. So, okay. So I don't have my... Well, I'll go to the beginning, right? So he was really... Involved, like, he was showing up. I don't remember the exact... But, like, it would be... Let's say it was once Sam came around, I think it was I don't think it was the first couple of years like, you know, like Doug Collins years. I don't think David Heller was showing up right to run draft stuff. But afterwards, I believe it was when Sam's there. I'm gonna forget the exact but like he would show up like start showing up a month before. Um, you know, and for draft meetings and things like that, um which is not common. Maybe Mark Cuban shows up for draft meetings, but I don't it's not common for like a minority especially, owner.
0: Especially yeah, right, especially <laughs> when you're not one of the primaries.
2: Right, exactly. Um and and like not one of the primaries like there are multiple primaries. Not even like you're number 2 on the depth chart, right? Like you're lower than that. Um they would be he would be on the uh, he would be on, I'm gonna. I'm always going to forget, I always forget what I used and whose names I used and I'm not allowed to use So, but he would be on trade calls, not trade calls, like they would be updating, the Sixers analytics department would be updating him um, on things or giving him like, you know, once a month meetings and like, here's what we're at, here's what our record is, here's some free agent ideas for things. So he was really involved and he enjoyed it. And people say he kind of knew his stuff a little bit, like it was clear he was familiar. Um, no one's saying he's like a scout, right? But like he was, you know, probably a knowledgeable fan. Um and then yeah, then afterwards, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, but like there are people saying I think I put this in, but like there are people who believe or say that he was basically the the driving force behind the uh Mikhail Bridges trade. The uh when which was but that was Brett was running the draft room technically, right? right? I forget what was the exact trade, it was Mikael Bridges uh, for
0: what they moved down to 15, I think, or 16, and they
2: got the Miami pick. Zaire Smith and Miami Miami pick, yeah. 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 And that was in typical Sixers fashion. They did it after Mikael Bridges, you know, was paraded (laughs) around in a Sixers hat, talking about how happy he is to work where to come work for his mom. uh, Yeah, (laughs) that was good. Um, so yeah, and then and then I found out when was it? Was it the deadline? I'm trying to remember. So he left last spring, right? I found out. I remember I was talking to somebody and I asked something along the lines of like, what, what was Heller? And they were like, oh, Heller hasn't been around forever. He's gone. And I thought that was telling. Maybe it was around deadline. Um, and I, yeah, I never got any other details on that other than that he was bought out. Well, do you um, remember,
0: you and I were texting back and forth because he yes. was removed from the 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 team personnel page right yeah.
2: right again going back to what i was saying right like they take the org chart and that stuff really seriously right they like, love exactly. their staff like, directory man they do like it matters so that's what i'm saying They're, like for them it matters like the playoffs when they send that out in the playoffs and regular season do you want to see like the order of who's in charge like go look at that first page whatever page that is right that's the one to look at um so yeah so i don't know and then as far as i knew he I you know got confirmed that he was bought out um Never heard anything back. I tried reaching out to him. I actually called. Maybe I called his wife when they were in China. I don't know. I got a number and like they were in China, which of course, right? <laughs> um, um, he was polite but didn't want to speak or give me anything on or, or off the record. I never. I, I'll half phrase it like this. I, I was never. I never got to read that there was a uh, kicking and screaming coming out, right? <laughs> right. Um, but just that that was. I so I get. So again, it was connecting dots, figuring like, oh, it's probably. And this is the part I'm making up, right? Or not making up, just reading tea leaves, right? Just like the whole point of being a minority owner of a team like that is to make some money. But also if you're a guy like him, like he had kind of retired, it's to play fantasy basketball a little bit, right? And I kind of assumed that by leaving, that was him saying, this is no longer what I'm doing.
1: Right. They and pushed I, back really strongly about the idea that he left kicking and screaming too, Yes, if I remember correctly. Yes. They're, they're not always a team that pushes back on stuff. But uh, yeah, it was certainly interesting timing for sure when that happened.
0: I will say I've I've and generally I think you don't want your owners involved but I I guess there have been a couple people here who have sort served as sort of a liaison between ownership and the front office and during bits and pieces he was certainly critical in that role Mm -hmm. of the basketball people I've talked to I think he is the one that they had the least problem interacting with and I guess, dealing with as that liaison between them and the owners. I never heard uh, anything
2: of like him being a jerk, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm sure some people thought it was weird, but like it didn't seem like he was like being dismissive or disrespectful or- right. And it seemed like know. he sort
0: of knew his boundaries a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I would Which agree. a lot of times billionaires don't.
2: Right, no, that's where you know, I'm, I'm rich, so therefore I'm smart, right? Right.
0: Yeah. All right, let's pause for one second to tell our listeners about Hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering, needlessly, from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help hydrate you quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Sixers at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Sixers for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Sixers. And now back to the show.
1: Speaking of not knowing boundaries, I thought another interesting part of the book was when you talked about Sam hinkey's early draft. Like his first draft two months after he got um, <laughs> yeah. hired. And I think... Part of the reason it was so good was because you got to talk to a lot of people who were there who were not under this kind of hush order from the organization because um, sure. it was so long ago and, you know, they were only there. So I, I just thought it was fascinating that like and, and I honestly didn't know a lot of these details um, for the 2013 draft when he surprised everybody and he traded Drew Holiday mm-hmm. for uh, for what was New Orleans Noel and eventually they got Dario and all that stuff. Um, so it was safe to say at that point, it was just him and Sachin Gupta were the only people who were really like knowing what's going on. And was that, do you think, because he just didn't know who to trust?
2: Um, I think that was a big part of it, right? His whole thing. And we learned this, you know, I learned this firsthand. You learned this cover, you guys learned this covering him. Like it was, that was a big thing. He felt like that was not not from a paranoia way in terms of like, I don't like the media, but just, you know, everything it's all, it's all a battle. And so like, I don't want anything getting out because that can give away a position. Therefore I lose some advantage, right. Competitive advantage is all out of competition. So he didn't want, he didn't know who to trust. He didn't want anything getting out. Um, yeah, I would say that would be it. And I guess he didn't know what to think of the, People there also. I mean, which is funny because someone told me, you know, he came in, he was complimentary of their draft record. And that should be said, right? As critical as you can be of the Sixers beforehand, like some of their draft picks in those years are really good. If you oh, go yeah. through the guys, like, you know, I mean, you can, there's a whole list of guys, like re- legitimate NBA players, like Lou Williams,
1: yep. Stavisio, Lou Williams, and, and then Kyle then Corver in the second Cowboy, round. They're yep. still playing basketball. That well, was and then, two it, decades ago almost. Even if yep. you go
0: immediately before hanky got there, skipping over the Evan Turner one. Oops, it happens. But, like, if you look at Thaddeus Young and you look at Drew Holiday, like, they were probably, of the people left in that draft, or at least left in that first round, they might have ended up being the best player available, and they, they got the, the the number one, the top player left.
2: Yep. Iguodala? Vooch? Vooch, right, exactly.
0: Yeah. So, like, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Like, if you get the pick right at three, it has much more impact than getting the pick right at 17. Correct, yep, which, exactly. uh Which sort of exemplified the strategy there um, but yeah their draft record was was pretty uh, again outside of Evan Turner which truthfully everybody gets a couple wrong and I loved Evan Turner too uh, so full disclosure there but yeah I think their draft record was pretty good
2: right and he kind of so someone told me he complimented them but just we're going to do things differently um, so I think it was that it was he was brought in pretty early pre, excuse me pretty late um, so there was no time to get used to to kind of get to lay of the land but I would say the biggest driving force was just not knowing who to trust or who to trust from a um from a, you know, who's not going to talk to a buddy or a reporter or something like that, and then also who to trust in terms of evaluation, right? Because um, then years later, he would, like, I mean, there are funny stories in the book about, like, you know, they would discuss, okay, what well, we don't know about this guy's left hand, let's go break, and the entire room goes break and, like, watches, like, 100 clips of, like, Michael Carter Williams dry, like, you know, taking lefty layups or whatever, right? It's um, funny
1: that they seem <laughs> like they were on the opposite end of that spectrum. They were like, this kid's got a good shot before then, and they were actually making some pretty good picks with, like, not that detailed of analysis. Right.
2: That actually is funny. Yeah. It's, um, which may be telling. Um, but I do think, and I think that was one of Sam's mistakes, right? Like just the people side, it gets taken too far in terms of some of the criticisms and, or I should say, some of the criticisms, criticisms become, I think, too boilerplate or too cliche, right? right. Um, but some of them are legit, and like that's a good example, where like he didn't do a good job of introducing himself to the staff, making them feel at ease, or letting them know, now you guys are going to have to look for new jobs, and just using them in the drafts. So, like Rod Thorne, you might not love Rod Thorne. There's got to be a way you can find use for Rod Thorne before draft week, right? Like <laughs> It just doesn't mean he has to be in the top meeting, but there should be some kind of use for him.
1: You mentioning the personal side of that. That is exactly where I was going to next because, you know, there are full chapters of all the crazy shit that happened in the first three years. Nerland's being a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. and bead being a pain in the ass. Okafor with, you know, he was in the newspaper every week for not basketball stuff. Um, So I, I guess what do you make of that like you had a quote in there i what was it exactly where he said about brett we're operating under two different goal structures
2: was that yeah i forget what it was but basically the idea that like incentives like they have different i don't remember the quote i know what you're saying right the idea he thought it was not only well,
0: you, you you only wrote 280 pages you have to remember <laughs> every quote you put in
2: i gotta say i've done pretty i've done pretty well on this uh i'll say book tour and quotes i've done pretty well in remembering some of them um yeah, the quote, but the idea was two-part. One, he thought just devoting his time, like, who cares about winning games? I'm better off devoting my time to, like, draft prep or whatever, you know, looking for some second-round pick to plunder. Um, that's one. The other part is we have different incentives. The coaching staff wants to win every game. We do not. Um, and he thought it would be kind of unfair to be around um, so much, if, with that being the reality. So like it's not like I always compare I wish I had thought of this before the book like I think the major league the movie comparison is great where like ownership builds a team to lose but like the coach doesn't know. Um yeah. right cause that in a way that I mean Brett knew but like it, Brett wasn't trying to lose games, right? That was Hopefully never... they
1: wouldn't have been tearing a piece off of uh, <laughs> Sam, Sam's clothing. <laughs> right. Josh Harris, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um I don't know how to go from that, um, yeah, but I so to go to that, I do think, and I think that was part of this, like I think Sam, and you know i- I've been asked about this a bunch, and I do think Brett deserves some blame for the you know the lack of accountability, um, but it didn't help that he didn't have a heavy kind of with him or helping him or above him, right, he was kind of an island on that, Sam sort of left him to alone to dealing with those stuff on the day to day and uh and I think that I think we saw some of the results of that,
0: yeah, you know, I was gonna say you 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 brought up like the Sam not like the human aspect, the the relationship aspect, maybe mm-hmm. not putting enough of, of an emphasis on and how it can get misinterpreted. And I think a lot of people just painted him as somebody who had no like interpersonal skills. Correct. And I will say that and I've covered a number of GMs going back to Ed Stefanski and obviously Colangelo and Brand. Hickey was the most, he, ha- he had the easiest conversation with him of any of those GMs. Like he was the most personable out of all of them, as long as you weren't trying to get information. Mm-hmm. Like I legitimately, in the years I covered the team, I got him to give me one bit of breaking news. One bit. And that was because I faked it, right? Like they made a trade <laughs> and they, the Sixers had to send something out. And you knew I think it was a JaVale McGee trade where they got a pick back for taking on a salary. And JaVale wanted to then come in and be a leader and they cut him like three days later. <laughs> He's like, I can lead young kids. And they're like, go away. It's but two I time I champion Javel McGee. All right, right, relax. Right. I knew it wasn't gonna be draft pick. I'm looking at their right tail players. I'm like, who was it? It was um Cchen Akiol. I'm like, it's gotta be Cenk. They're sending out Chen because he's never gonna play here. They're not sending out Mitchick, they're not sending out Sharch. Can you confirm that Cenk Akiol is uh, a <laughs> the, 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 the right tail player you're included? And yes, he confirm quote unquote confirmed that. That's the one thing, one bit of news he broke for me. And that was I it. love it. I love it. So if you asked him for that, he shut down. There was nothing. He was not going to give you it. If you asked him like your thoughts on his team or his thoughts on the Sixers shut down. He, what he would do in that instance is he will then ask you your thoughts Yeah, yes, <laughs> and make you feel important, but also just not have to give you what he thought because he didn't want you to then be able to read that. But if you ask about anything else, including like basketball theory, he would, I, I've had more hour long conversations with Sam than I have with any other GM that's run the Sixers. It's just, he wasn't going to give you what us reporters are looking for.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, Rich, I mean, you guys were around more than I would, but that's one, knowing that from like hearing you and, you know, a dozen other reporters say similar things. And then, you know, even my, even my interactions with him, right? <laughs> Limited as they were. Um, right. I do. Like, he does have, he does care about people. He does have a people side. It's just, it's like when he put the hat on a Sixers GM, it, it's almost like it came with blinders, right? To it, certain it's things. It's
0: like he thought he had to shut it off.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um and and to the detriment and like I think he believed he no, I think. He truly believed the work would speak for itself, right? He truly yep. believed that in the end we're gonna be really good and that'll be all that'll matter and I think he missed it. I mean one comparison is like there's a political comparison a little bit, you know. I've heard um not I saw one I don't remember who it was compared to like Bernie Sanders not politically but the idea is like you have to get elected first before you can enact all your policies right so you got to forget the part that he has to get elected or keep his job or stay employed right that's part of the job if you're going to lead a team yeah. you can-
0: And there's a million different things like if he would have if Joel doesn't need that second surgery or if they get the number 1 pick in the draft a year before then mm-hmm. or if you know a number of different things work out would his his theory of you know, let the work speak for itself. Would that work? Like if Joe, Joe plays one year earlier, probably, right. but he didn't, his actions never bought him the benefit of the doubt with the media or the public. And that's why, you know, maybe he wouldn't have needed the benefit of the doubt, but if he did, he didn't have it. And I think that was, so I, I guess going back to what my question was going to be before we got on that tangent, what do you think is the number one thing, you know, cause you go in and you talk about the scouts who didn't know whether they were going to have jobs and felt disconnected from the draft process in that first 2013 draft, Uh where he then went out, talked to pretty much only Sachin Gupta, or at least shared closest confidence with Sachin Gupta, and remade their entire team. Drew learned of the trade, or Drew's agent learned of the trade from the Pelicans, not from the Sixers. And you have all these kind of mistakes, missteps along the way of dealing with agents and scouting departments and all these things. What do you think was the biggest thing that he could have done to maybe stem the tide or at least a narrative from building to what it was.
2: Interesting. You're saying that in that first year like what done originally?
0: I mean first first year, two years, somewhere in that range. Like where do you think he misstepped the most?
2: I do think, this might not answer your question but I think that like one of the biggest surprises for me and I, I've never gotten a good answer to this, right? Even talking to people and ask like I'm I'm surprised for somebody who preaches so much about like looking for different different views and different perspectives, and I'm surprised he didn't bring in, and I'll use Elton Brand as an example, that he didn't bring in Elton Brand type as his assistant GM type from the beginning, right? Um, that the people he kind of went with were Sasha and later Ben Falk, people who I think we all know and we all think are very smart, right? But who for the most part approached the game similarly, right? And come from a different, sim- similar place. Um, and I think he could have used someone... And I'll use the brand example, not only to give a different perspective, but also to sort of be a liaison and vouch a little bit to the rest of the league, whether it's agents or um, other teams or scouts. I think from the beginning, that would have helped him a lot more um it's crazy how little experience this was one, this actually maybe it should have answered your question earlier that what I was surprised looking back how little experience the entire staff put in around him had so you had him first time gm right he's been with the rockets for a long time but fair to say not like a not a career mba guy Um, Brett was a longtime NBA guy, but he wasn't a – he was, like, the number two assistant coach. And from there, you know, his path to becoming a number two assistant coach was different. And then, like, the front office was all young, new people. Um, The coaching staff was, for the most part, like, all new young people, Um, people, maybe a player development guy here or there um, who had been around. But, like, it's not like they hired a – let's say Jim O'Brien, who there is now, right? It's not like they had a – they gave Brett a Jim O'Brien right-hand man from the beginning um there's just very little experience around them very little traditional NBA experience around them and i do think part of that goes back i, I someone told me this i didn't put it in because like, i couldn't verify but it does make sense that like they think this was also again the private equity playbook like why spend money on salaries right like if we're not caring about winning who cares um so I yeah I think those things could have been those things could have made a big difference in terms of just outreach right outreach and and then not trying to crush on every single deal whether it's a trade whether it's a <laughs> signing like an agent whether it's not releasing Andre Karolenko because you think maybe you can get a second round pick you know three weeks later who like who cares just like not ha- seeing the lo- hey, I'll use his I'll use his word right seeing the having the long lens on that stuff
0: well I'll tell you who cares about that second round pick Sam definitely cares. <laughs>
1: There was a quote in there where the other GM was saying he always offers the worst fucking deals. Uh, <laughs> I got a good, uh, good chuckle out of that. Don't
2: don't you love well, when the NBA sounds like your own fantasy football league? Like I love that when that happens. Like
1: exactly. that one guy just gives you bad offers all the time.
0: <laughs> the problem is if you do that enough, you eventually land on Vlade and things. Yeah, work Exactly. Out. Yeah, exactly. that's what I mean. You become exactly. the first
1: call and and technically win every trade that uh, that you made. The uh, I'm yeah, glad I you think... brought up Brett though. I, I wanted well, to hold ask on. about this. Let me this. let me just
0: one thing on the front office, and then we'll go to Brett. Sure. So I think I think his philosophy, and and it's sort of just picking up on conversations. He never said this directly, but I think his view would be: Why should I have to limit myself to only people who had like who were tall enough and athletic enough to play in the NBA? If I take that approach, I'll never find a Ben Falk. You know, right? What, what's what's Ben? Maybe five seven. <laughs> I think I'm probably being generous there. Um, 25 when he hired him but he had like a 1600 I think he wrote he had a 1600 on his SATs and it's probably like a literal genius like if I limit myself yes. to only people who played in the NBA I'm going to miss out on people like that and I think there's some truth of that like you watch you, it was always funny you'd watch Hinky, Gupta and Falk walk through like the press conference area after a game <laughs> and it was the least basketball looking trio of people you could find but I think you're right like there is a perspective and for somebody like you said who Prides himself on taking in all perspectives. There is both a perspective he could have gained by having at least one person like that near the top, but also probably just as crucially, there is a
2: legitimacy, en- right? Like, yeah, like it's part of legitimacy that of it, like a and like yeah.
0: a, a way to control the narrative. Yep. That I think he overlooked, and probably, quite frankly, had a little bit of a disdain for.
2: Yeah. And like, by the way, I don't like, I agree. Like God, like, yeah, hire Ben Fox and Sasha's and everyone else just like hire them with, so, you know, do both. Right. That's my whole thing. Like right. just we'll use a salary for Elton Rand or Malik Rose. or whoever the guy, you know, doesn't have to be a long time. It could be a new guy, just whoever, um, you know, and yeah, that's, that would be my whole thing. I don't have any, yeah, I don't have any issues with those guys. Just add one more view.
1: You pointed it out in the book that, you know, for as big business as the NBA is, it kind of is like this small little club with all the agents controlling, you know, a certain mm-hmm. number of players. And, yeah, there was a legitimacy that could have been gained if you did get an ex-player to to add there. I like that. So so going to Brett, I, I, I always find this fascinating because, like, on one hand, you have, like, the disciplinarian coach. And you happen to write about one because that's part of the Sixer story, Doug Collins. Um, yep. Scott Skiles is another one I would bring up. You have these guys that kind of, you know, they turn their teams around quickly, and then, you know, they, they just burn out. And uh, three years later, you're looking for a new coach. On the other hand, you have Brett, who seemed to be more of a player's coach, and you have a lot of stuff in there about how he handled those first, you know, two or three teams that really stunk. And how there were pickups along the way. People thought he wasn't hard enough on, uh, on like, New Orleans Noel, for example. Yep. I guess just in general, from from all the reporting you you did, do you think there's a balance that he could have struck that was better, or or was this just kind of part of what you were going to do with the roster he was given? Maybe like he wasn't given enough veterans. That could have been part of it. Like I would say, it, it doesn't really matter what the record was at the end of the year because they were going to lose you know sixty plus games every year. It's just there was no way around that but how do you think he handled kind of the the locker room dynamics
2: i uh, i have so much trouble answering like that like cuz I, I always get asked so like what 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 should he have done differently and like it's so hard to answer cuz it's like what you're saying and i don't i don't think most people do and i certainly don't believe in the you know disciplinarian coach i don't think that stuff matters especially at the pro level right i don't think that makes a difference it's almost like there's an it factor just some guys have it and some guys don't right and just the ability to kind of Go both sides on that. It's like Nerdlands was a big, Nerdlands was certainly, I, I kind of joke it's like the original sin of this whole thing. Um, but but then like the Sixers would re- right, the Sixers would respond though. So like, again I have the story in the book about like them, you know, they're, hold- they're holding the plane for him. He's not even playing, they're holding the plane and like Jason Richardson is yelling like I know we're not holding the plane for no rookie. Um and he gets on and no one says anything. Um uh, but the Sixers would say, Well, we find him a lot of money. So like, what do you mean we didn't do anything? Um but there's just there's just some kind of like there's like a, a it thing there that you need. And then part of it also is like on the players, like I've used this quote, but like the Popovich talking about how Timmy let me coach him and that made a difference. Right. And the Sixers guys are certainly not that, um, whether it was Nerlens, whether it was Joel. I mean, then you have Joel coming in and you know, he's probably acting out a little bit because he's depressed and he's dealing with the death of his brother, which is a horrible thing. And like, I'm sure like maybe if that doesn't happen is Joel, you know, eating baked chicken instead of fried fingers. Right. <laughs> I'm not like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it sounds silly, but right. But like maybe he maybe it's all different. Um, it's just it's just like these little these little things that kept piling on piling on and then at the end I just think it became too much for Brett to you know he hasn't been able to overcome and there's no like the, the vo- his voice is clearly not there in the locker room I think you guys would agree with that right I don't want to put you guys on the spot but it's just it's fairly obvious and the example I always go to is you know the the Ben Simmons quote and I wish I could have used it I wish, that, I wish this happened before the book was done but like the whole tell Ben I want to see a 3 every game thing which is just like an incredible quote from a coach. You never see that. Um, and then the player did not res- respond by not taking a three, the rest of the and season. The last one uh, he talked about. Yep. Right. Um, like I just find that so telling, right. That the coach felt the need to do that. The player then said, basically bleep you. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, so they answer to your question, like, and then the fact that Brett had no one helping him, whether it was Sam or, you know, executive, whether it was a longtime assistant coach, um, whether it was the veterans, and the veteran thing, I always think it's important. It doesn't mean just get some old guy who's been around a lot, because a lot of those guys are bad leaders, but there are such things as good veteran leaders. It doesn't mean just get like an old guy, but, um, they had none of those. So I just think all these things play together, and I think Brett had trouble coaching the superstars or kind of, you know, someone gave me a quote about, um, I forget who it was. It was one of the assistant coaches. You know, Brett wanted to be good friends with Nerlens, like so he wanted he would let him work on his shooting and things like that, as opposed to telling him, "No, like Tyson Chandler is who you should be." That's it, right? Um, you don't have to work on your fifteen foot jump shot. Um, so just kind of figuring out how to play that role, and I just don't know if he ever did. So I don't know yeah. if that answered your question. So
0: I guess following up on that, like you did a really good job of sort of profiling Brett and where he came from. And he really had two sort of disciplinarian coaches that molded his life, right? His father, Bob, uh, when he was in high school, and then Rick Pitino at Boston University. And then you have a, 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 you you lay out in detail, like sort of Brett when he was over in Australia and where he at one point was tearing up a room because he was so angry and so demonstrative. And one of his players sort of got up and said, look, this this isn't helping the coaching staff or this isn't helping the players. Mm Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think someone who came from background of disciplinarians, first of all, do you think like maybe he has sort of a lax attitude because he played under such disciplinarians? That's a great and question. And why do you think he sort of veered off from the trajectory he was headed when he was coaching in Australia?
2: Well, in high school, so right, I, I should have, like, that's a good point, right? In high school, he had the classic, like, you know, the son of this the, son of the disciplinarian coach who is sort of a clown, right? In high school, that was him. Um and even, again, with Patino, he was sort of the class clown. Like, he took basketball seriously. But stories about him showing up late and Patino making him run back in the snow. Or, you know, his dad, like, you know, him and his dad fighting during dinners. Um, Brett. <laughs> Brett, there's one quote Brett has given about 40 times in, like, different podcasts about him, his mom having to break up dinners between him and his dad. It's I love when Brett, like, repeats the same quotes in every single podcast or interview or anything he's got it he's really good with some of that stuff um yeah no it's a good question i mean part of it right in australia like there are stories i spoke to some of the players about like them not them thinking he was overreacting or taking it too personally um it's almost like i'm trying to think how to say this i think one of the things also especially with the veterans maybe it's not even it's that you cannot be a disciplinarian but then you need to have like you got you have there's got to be some you got to have a thing so your thing could be I'm connecting with the players or your thing could be I'm you know they're, I'm kind of I'll say disciplinarian in quotes I don't mean like Bobby Knight but I'm kind of the hard ass and you know we run a tight ship here and I don't think he's done either with the in the latter years especially and I think that's been his bigger problem right so at least I don't know again I'll go back to Ben Simmons is it fair to say like there's not a mutual risk like I don't I don't know if Ben how much if Ben Simmons I don't know how much Brett's voice matters to Beth, Ben Simmons at this point right um I don't know how much it matters to Embiid and some we've seen that with a few of those stars so maybe it did to like TJ McConnell but that's a different kind of thing that guy needs you to make the NBA um, the second level is next generation I should say next generation the second wave um, I don't think he's connected with them on a personal level either so if you don't have that and if you're not like if your players coach thing isn't working right and we can make fun of we can talk about the Jimmy Butler stuff but you know we, that, that podcast with JJ was kind of illuminating even if you don't take Jimmy at every one of his words um so if you're not if you're not if you not ha- if you don't have that thing and you don't have the um the hard ass thing like what what are you working with and I think that's been one of the problems.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um and I think especially you bring up the I want to see a 3 every game. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, I mean that is I mean it feels so long ago with the, the 8000 <laughs> things that have happened in the in the real world since it's then. a crazy but... quote, right? It's a crazy thing. When when we, well, when it's it's have also, we seen I, that.
0: I will say the one thing I'll say about that is I don't think there's I'm not convinced there's a coach on this earth right now that can get Ben to take a three again.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, but I would have said before then, like, you know, maybe like two or three years ago, Brett Brown is the guy who can motivate him to do it because, yeah. you know, whether it was the coaching, his dad, just the, the guy who ushered him through his rough first year when he broke his foot, blah, blah, blah. He would have been the guy. Well, he's not the guy. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tricky. There was, uh, there was a couple of good anecdotes about about him. Um, I'm not going to give them all because I want people to buy this book. But uh, oh, him calling that. the wrong player's name during the <laughs> process was uh, was pretty good. Like, I.
0: <laughs> well, I always just, feel like wait, was that the Jakar one. <sighs>
2: I don't, was that, I don't remember. Was that, was it Chikar? I don't remember. He might, he might not have said who it was. He might have just said the wrong player. Maybe yeah. you saw it somewhere else i him, saying. I always feel like I have well, to defend Well, I know a story. Him. I'm just not yeah. so
0: sure if it's the same story.
1: That's, a, <laughs> I think you just gave it away, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, um, the other thing I liked that you had too in there was uh, how Embiid can embellish stories because, yeah. you know, you kind of talked about his backstory and I was thinking. Well, we was, all know
0: the lion bit.
1: Yeah. Right, But exactly. but, but even just like, basic facts about how he started playing basketball have been twisted as your own has in his book. And you're going to have to read it to find out. But it just reminded me of like, you know, when I hear for the sixth time after a game, I'm not having fun. I'm getting back to having fun. It's like, you know, when people eat that crap up and it's like, he's performing, come on, man, just, just stay healthy and get in shape. Like, like that's all that matters here.
2: Um, I would agree. He's, he's, he's a perform. you know, he's performing and he's very aware of how he's being covered and like, and the narrative, right? He's very... I guess that's the word. He's very
1: aware of the narrative. Um, it, it just frustrates me that he says stuff that, like, literally does not mean anything. It, it <laughs> like, has zero meaning. And people still eat it up. And, like, people ask follow-ups, what do you mean you're not having fun? And stuff like that. It's like, oh, my God. It's, it's, uh, Sorry, it's sort of like... You know, there, it, no, it reminds me a little bit...
2: I, this is going to sound random. Do you remember like Deadspin did a story a few years ago? This is a while, obviously a few years ago about how like maybe Sal Palantos somebody comes out and says like a quarterback is bad. And then they spend like a week working on that. Like that then becomes the news cycle for ESPN. They start talking about how their own guy said a thing and that becomes a narrative and self-fulfilling. It kind of reminds me of that in a way where like he's saying it, knowing that's going to trigger a whole thing. And then he's in the news and it's going to be a whole story about him. It's just, yeah, he's very aware. He's very aware of how he's covered. I remember Frank Isola this year on Around the Horn had a funny line. like I butcher it but he's like i've never seen a player we care so much about their feelings not in like a bad way but just man are you are you healthy play basketball what do we mean are you happy what that? like what are you talking about um which is, i would agree with you i would uh, i would certainly agree with you
0: all right let's pause for one more brief break this time to hear from the black tux the black tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear a suitor tuxedo for their big debt did you know the black tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you can imagine It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code Sixers. That's theblacktux.com code Sixers for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. And now back to the show. All right, so let's, uh, let's go to the This Starts Now marketing campaign. <laughs> How does that happen?
2: <laughs> you know, it's... Um, so
0: I, I, what's... I guess for people who haven't read the book and who maybe yeah. don't remember, just explain that this starts now. And why that became an issue? Uh,
2: I'm gonna and help me with the date because I always I always feel like I need a basketball reference page open February as I'm doing this. So that's and Michael Carter Williams is um so Scott O'Neill. I, I'm assuming fancy the listeners here know who Scott O'Neill is. If not, yes. Derek and Rich, you guys are failing the them. CEO um, of
0: the Sixers <laughs> of well of Harris Blitzer Sports Harris Blitzer then, okay. Sports right and the
2: Sixers right. I think that's how that goes right. I don't know. I think you're. On it was both.
0: originally just the Sixers and yeah. then it grew.
2: Um, he comes to Sam. He wants to do a marketing campaign. I don't know why, What was the other one? I don't remember what the old one was. Something like corny, like we're like here we build or what? I don't know. Something together but, we um, build. I think that might have been it. Um. I always love thinking. And I'm gonna. This is kind of mean, but I just love thinking that, like, you know, there are like five days of like four hour meetings, like pitching
0: around that? these, yeah. The,
1: yeah, these things. Yeah,
0: but the, <laughs> um, they're the they're other, ripping the,
1: SIGs like Don Draper and, and drinking. Yeah, exactly. During <laughs> the other the end of the
0: coin is you spend no time on it, and then you end up with a podcast called the Sixers Beat.
1: So. <laughs> I kind of like oh. that though. It's uh, it's straight <laughs> to the point. Straight to the point, man.
0: It works with SEO, so that's all that matters.
1: Naming yeah. shit is really hard.
2: Yeah. Could, you could have gotten rights to Ricky Sanchez. What's no, that? nothing, nothing there. <laughs>
0: um, I, look, they did a great job naming that. I, I, I've told them that flat out.
2: Um. Okay. Yeah. So Scott. So the. Uh, okay. Together we build. He comes. He wants to do a new marketing campaign. This starts now. On it is going to be Michael Carter Williams, Nerlens Noel, and Joel Embiid. I believe are the three guys. Um. And he comes to Sam. And like a day before. Oh, sorry. Let me rephrase. Scott O'Neill says he comes to Sam a day before and says, "Are we good or whatever." and this is right before the trade deadline and scott o'neill says he um says that sam says yes um and then they train michael carter williams like the next day (laughs) um or two days after but i guess not probably not the next day right probably a few days later because like the campaign was done like there was no changing it uh if you my understanding is that i don't believe sam was asked you know if this is a thing you know if this is uh are we good here i don't necessarily believe that happened sam Um, would
0: never be like no we're not gonna make a trade right exactly
2: exactly Scott O'Neill has told this story about as like making fun of himself like that he does some um, as somebody who's probably listened to more Scott O'Neill business podcasts than anyone in the world I can tell <laughs> you he, he talks about the story one time as like a haha I messed up story but he was um, he was furious um, and embarrassed and that was one of the you know the relationship was tenuous um, that was sort of one of the final straws there for that in terms of O'Neill feeling like the, the, the basketball operations the basketball strategy was getting in his way
0: it's amazing for a couple of reasons. First of all, you don't run a campaign at that time. I get you have right. season tickets to sell, but like, not as important. And the second thing is that was just a undeniably good trade.
1: Right. <laughs> like, no, exactly. Great trade.
0: I'll never, I'll never, ever, I'll never forget that press conference because the a lot of the media won't get into names, but a lot of the media were just beside themselves, like well, they could of the year. not believe. <laughs> That they traded the rookie of the year and left them without a point guard. It could, like, it didn't even matter whether or not Michael Carter Williams was a good point guard or not. Just team didn't have a point guard. They're gonna have to start this whole thing over. And it was just like we are looking at two different sports. It was mind boggling.
1: Derek, here was the craziest part about it too. A lot of those same people, you know, we were. I think that was my first year covering games. So after those games. Pretty much all Sixers losses at that point. We would ask like Brett questions like, "Is MCW shooting too much? Like, what's up with this guy? Is he any good?" It'd be like those same people, and then it was like, "How can you trade him?" <laughs> I was gonna say the same thing, yeah.
0: <laughs> How can you trade him? You all know he was playing like crap.
1: I mean, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it was it was uh, when you look back at it now and where Michael Carter Williams is with his career, and look that uh that Lakers pick didn't end up being quite as good as we expected because it kept falling in that top three protection. And just long enough so they could make a jump. And I think it ended up, what, being 10th? But um, just yeah. a... Yeah. He, sh- he okay, should have so-
1: priced in that the Lakers would be the luckiest lottery team in the history of the <laughs> NBA. <laughs> right.
0: And even so, by the way, the 10th pick was a great haul for Michael Carter-Williams, who stinks.
2: So... Can I, wait, can I interrupt? Can I tell the story? Well, just quickly yeah, how sure. I, over, I overheard... I your podcast. I mean, yeah, I, mean is, I, I
0: say it <laughs> truthfully. This is your podcast to promote your book.
2: No, I did love the... Uh, I, I have a, In my epilogue, I didn't... I kind of... I basically stalked Hinky around Sloan Conference last year, and I heard him... I overheard him ask a friend in NBA... Someone else in the NBA, you know, is MCW still in the league? Which I thought was hilarious. Um, so yeah. I figured I'd add that part.
0: <laughs> and by the way, that's a fair question, because sometimes right. I forget too. <laughs> yeah. So, would you say that that was when scott like when the relationship between scott and sam was pretty much untenable at that point is is that fair to say
2: yeah um yeah i would say so and i just i mean again i don't know the exact like the timeline of it you know i i believe you know scott it's i mean it's pretty um it's fair to say he was certainly you know he was connected to the league office and obviously connected to sixers ownership so he certainly was in touch with both you know both ends in terms of his um issues and i love the um i'm patting myself on the back here but just the anecdote of him i'll tell like him pitching StubHub to sponsor the team on jerseys and telling them that don't in 2015 in the fall of 2015 he's telling them that by the time jersey sponsors are allowed in the nba a year or two from now don't worry the sixers will be really good so we don't have to worry um which is like again sam hinky never timelines was a no-no right yeah. um uh, so I'm pitching that, and then not mentioning it. I asked the StubHub CEO, "Oh, what he'd say about Sam Sam Hankey? And the guy goes, "I've never heard that name before. He never mentioned it. I don't know who that is." Which I thought was pretty amazing too. Like, by in general, usually mention your GM. Um, by then, the process was like a thing. Sam was like a thing. To in that situation, to still not mention Sam is pretty um, telling. So I think that, yeah, I would say that certainly summarizes it.
0: All right, so hmm. you. Where do you think the last straw was? If, if that was the last straw with Scott, where do you think the last straw was with Josh when he really became convinced that they needed to make a change?
1: Uh, Okafor, I think it was the uh, that's the least of uh, that's it's how it's unbelievable to the worst player of the bunch and the the least consequential was the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, yeah. here's
0: here's here's a, and again, this is your own podcast, so I don't want to speak too much. <laughs> but the amazing thing about me and about how that narrative built up. Two of the three incidents that Okafor really got in trouble for: there was a speeding ticket over the Ben Franklin Bridge. Uh-huh. There was the gun being pulled on him in South Philly, and then there was a fight in Boston. Uh-huh. The gun being pulled on him in South Philly happened before they played a game. That was, I think, that was the day that training camp broke. But people looked at that and said, "This is a young kid who can't handle the losing." But he hadn't lost a game yet. But because that didn't come out until weeks or even a, I think it was probably about a month and a half after it happened, because it, it took long to come out, it just piled up like, oh, he's acting out because he can't handle losing when that and the the one hundred and two over the Ben Franklin both happened before <laughs> he lost the game, but it was right, still used as well this this program's out of control, we got to fix it when that was it really w- just a kid out of control
2: i do it was I do think the I do think the leadership vacuum affected that as well, right um, well I
0: you mean like leadership, like somebody speaking out to it or somebody there to help Okafor?
2: Uh, the latter. Yeah, the latter. Um, and I don't necessarily, it again, it doesn't have to be a veteran. It could be anyone. It could be Sam, right? It could be somebody. Um, and there's a lot going on there. And, you know, I put in the book, like, Okafor had his own demons. Um, you know, saw his mom. His mom basically died in front of him. Not basically, sure. his mom did die in front of him when he was nine years old or whatever, which is horrible. Putting together those. Qu- it's funny. One of the most, just from a book writing perspective, like, seeing laying out and this is one of the things with the mb chapter and you start noticing discrepancies but then stuff like okafor when you see all these things put together like when you print out every article he's ever done you know every profile on him ever and you see the quotes side by side and it starts to paint a picture and like seeing oh his mom died and then 10 years later him telling chicago magazine yeah my biggest fear is someone else dying and just like these little things that there's a keep repeating and it's like oh man this guy was really understandably so but really haunted um and I, I did not have a lot of this, but, I mean, his father was not a – in the book, but his father was not a uh, great um, – I
0: mean daddy of a pro?
2: Yeah, exactly. A great mentor figure, how do we put that, right? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, but that – so the, the TMZ video, I think it was the Okafor, the TMZ video was the one that kind of, you know, the NBA – Called Sixers vice the Sixers security and like saying Adam Silver Adam wants to know why the team why one of his players is on TMZ and no one from the team is called um, called the league and, office and that is
0: the one like if if like I'll say two of the three incidents had nothing to do with losing that one I'm sure did mm-hmm. like oh, if they yeah. yeah, win that Thanksgiving game, game about in Boston any of this? probably not
2: and it's also like everyone knew this was a thing also like by again you're talking about how the 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 incidents were in October like the Sixers know that stuff's happening they knew the drinking and the was a problem and the fact that it just wasn't addressed I think was one of those things that scared the league um, and scared the league from an image perspective but also from a humane perspective right they were they were I think there was genuine concern I know there are people with the sixers who were genuinely concerned and frustrated with how you know Okafor was wasn't things weren't being addressed in a way they thought it should be um but after that I mean Josh Harris brings in lawyers to depose um hinky Brett Brown the sixer security guy Al Mom- I mean a few people just to depose them about the whole situation like that was kind of and that's kind of you know that was it basically
1: so should we get to Markel fault
0: <laughs> yeah I guess
1: <laughs> your own discuss
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I'm not I can't I can't
2: uh Ooh, what what, what do you okay what you well, I can what do you what what did you find most interesting about the fault stuff I have
1: well I do think and and this has been reported in some other places but I do think the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, and, and it was similar Tell to what kid you, we said hi. <laughs> he wants to make his podcast debut. He wants to talk faults. I, I get it. <laughs> I get it. There's Fultz. a lot of people who do. Um, I mean, first off, it's a great... Uh, the chapter of that title is is great. Yeah. Uh, this is not the fucking kid we drafted, and I'll let you... Uh, I'll let the uh, listeners buy the book and figure out what that... Who said that and everything. Um, I, I, I would say the behind-the-scenes stuff with, like, his mother yeah. and... Yep. Keith Williams, who is this figure who I think anybody who has listened to our podcast Mm -hmm. and really just followed the fault saga knows about, but it's still so unsatisfying and so confusing as to what actually happened there um, and and like what the cause of it was and all of these different things. But I would say the stuff that you had about, you know, Ebony interjecting herself into Fultz's life and yep. being protective and again and,
0: another really sort of like an Okafor where she had a really tough upbringing and yep. what her parents abandoned her i think that's what I it was I believe
1: yeah again so like and i
2: love when not I love, And you can like, tell
0: how that would then shape her exactly, which would then shape Marcus exact,
2: Exactly like if you if your parents abandon you and I, I I'm I, I think it was parents. If not, I'm, I apologize to whoever would be offended by that. But she was definitely, somebody left her, right? Um, but then, you're right, the, the obvious reaction, right? It would be then, uh, okay, I'm going to be overprotective. I shouldn't say right. obvious, but it's an understandable reaction, right? For sure.
0: That being said, some of the reported, yes. you know, listening in to his apartment, like things like, you that, that would be tough on a kid. Yeah, um, for sure. Who we forget is... It was what 19 at the
2: time 19 and the part i always add is went from you know he wasn't like groomed to be a number one pick he went from like he was he was playing jv basketball as a sophomore right it wasn't like ben simmons who i think from the age of 13 was ready to uh was ready like was preparing to be in the spotlight of a number one pick martin the false family was not like that at all this happened fast
0: but you did say now there was a no look he 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 did not shoot well at the sixers workout well you, no, you guys you guys saw that, that. I remember tweeting out, it doesn't matter. He shot, like, I don't need a workout to know the kid can shoot.
1: Yeah, we were there.
0: Yeah. Oops. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he went and he went to summer league and he played well in his, what, yeah. two games, I think, there. Yeah. Average 20 a game.
1: As you pull up Jimbo.
0: Was making shots. His shot, the form was different than it was in college. Mm-hmm. But it was not yet disastrous. Now, I think he had a quote from Lloyd Pearson here where a week later, or, or whenever he was allowed to start playing again after his ankle injury. And he just something, something along the lines Of paraphrasing The kid can't fucking shoot
2: Yeah I'll be clear Just so he doesn't get in trouble That was relayed Someone told me Lloyd said that to them Right Okay about that.
0: What okay. <laughs> Did you ever get any indication What in the Bleepity bleep 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 Happened between that ankle injury And early August When he was getting back into it
2: the The best indication I got Was that The ankle injury And I think I put this in right Like he sort of goofed off was shooting around and goofing off and shooting around a little bit while his ankle was maybe in a boot whatever while while staying off his ankle and the people one of the hypotheses is that sort of led to like a not not a short circuiting but that just altered the muscle memory a little bit right um which i think if you've play, like anyone's played like if you ch- if you shoot differently for a bit it can mess with you a little like if you well
0: i think especially like let's say hypothetically speaking yep you shot a certain way in college and Markell was not a natural shooter coming through high school. Like, he sort of became a shooter late. So you figure a lot of work was put in late to refine that form. Mm-hmm. Then maybe you come into the NBA and you're trying to take a step back to a further three-point line, and you alter it a little bit. And mm-hmm. maybe that's what we saw during the workouts. Then you go to Summer League, and you've been working on that, but it's not quite muscle memory yet. And then you goof around, and maybe it can have a more drastic impact. I don't know. It, we're all just throwing theories out. But it is still the strangest thing I've ever covered.
2: Right, that would be right that because that afterwards, like some of the, and again, I'm always hesitant to draw A to B, but there were some of the family stresses that I think I'll put words in your mouth. Like I think we all agree probably contributed to what we see now, right? Or sure. the complete breakdown, which I know false. And this is one of the things that's been difficult, right? False and his entire camp seem um, they refuse to even acknowledge a possibility that anything happened other than a shoulder injury, right? To even like entertain the notion. Um. So it makes it difficult mm, to talk depends about. Depends on
0: which part of the camp you talk about. Well, to, right.
2: Yeah, well, I should. I mean, faults and agency. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yes. Um. Faults and Raymond Brothers is agent, right? And um, yeah. So, but so, but some of those stresses came, like again, I've those, like, kind of later on after summer league. So the best, the best guess I had was kind of what you are saying, right? That you are there were some things with the shot, and he hurts himself and goofing off, and something of the some of the muscle memory or technique is altered a little bit, and he didn't know how and to to come back from it
0: probably some pain and then he lost confidence in it and yep. it just snowballed like I've never seen anything snowball in yeah. my life. And it, part of the... the sh- I think part of the problem, both for him and also then covering this story, is that everybody was out to basically say it wasn't me. And it seemed like everyone yeah. in his life, from the Sixers, to the trainer, to the agent, to Markel, wasn't me. And I, w- I will say this, and, and and you know, I don't think Keith Williams is blameless in this. Mm-hmm. But I do think he... Frankly, I think a lot of the people around there, I think the Sixers care about him, I think Keith Williams cares about him. I think his mother obviously cares about him. But I don't know if they ever found the right way to care about him, if that makes sense. Yeah, everybody also took this what was becoming a national story and wanted to shift blame off of themselves and it was just it was a it was a tough spot for him to be in.
2: I do think the Sixers I it, I do think it did seem like reporting and just seeming, you know, reporting and just getting a vibe. It did seem like they were quick, quickest to sort of uh, throw others under the bus in terms of this, right? It wasn't like uh, when when something like this is happening early on, everyone can make a decision. We're going to come together. That did not happen. And I, it does seem like the Sixers went on the offensive a little bit early on. Like, I mean, they did. They threw Keith Williams under the bus early, right? <laughs> really early. They went well, with like that you one.
0: said, this isn't the kid we fucking drafted,
2: right? No, they threw him out really early, right? And Brett was like, you know, Brett said he'll fix him, and you know that didn't work. Um, you know, Brett prides himself on—I uh, didn't put this in anywhere—but like he prides himself on being a player development that people know, but also a shooting expert. So
1: you know, and I
0: mean, his his shot was broken before he got to camp. Yep. Yeah. I.
1: So to me it all comes back to, you know, as crazy as the story became, all the twists and turns, the thing that makes the Sixers look the worst out of all of this is that Danny Ainge knew something was up. Yeah. Yes. He knew. Like like I will I mean, say though,
0: they didn't they didn't think it was irreversible. Like they had other concerns. I think they had a lot of concerns on maturity. I think there were maybe some injury concerns because he had that um I think it was a was it a meniscus? During his one season at Washington and Miss I end believe of the time. so. I believe so. And I think he had surgery in April ish time frame. So I think there was some concern about that long term and some maturity concerns. I don't think they thought like his shot was never I think they had noted and I think the Lakers, the o- only other team he worked out with, had noted that it was changed. But I don't think anybody really thought like he'll never recover from this. I don't yeah,
2: know. no, I uh, I would agree. Right, the shot. I mean, for, so Fultz definitely he shot poorly in the workout with Boston. For whatever that's worth. I but, no, but yeah. I agree. I agree also. Right, I think, and they were right. They, that's the part where Rich I would agree. Like they knew the maturity and circle and just the whole pack. Right. The whole package. I think they that one they
1: nailed. Um, and Maybe they, they wouldn't agreed. have picked the the story out completely, but they knew the elements that were there that something could have went wrong, even if they didn't know the complete scope of it
0: okay. or they, something. They yeah. they they knew the concern. Yeah. yeah. I would I would say that's fair. I would say that's fair. All right. So I guess two things, and then we'll let you go. Because what I thought would be about a 35, 40-minute podcast, we're now on nearly 70 minutes of podcasts.
2: That's amazing. Let's keep going, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I have <laughs> I have two crying kids and, and an angry wife in the other room waiting for me, so I'm this good here. This has been here. my life so for I, the
0: last me here. seven years, so <laughs> I could talk about this for a while. Um, You, I, you had I one note like <laughs> in here that Tony DeLeo, who was an interim GM, yeah. basically put in there to sort of like Doug Collins day-to-day guy he was at one point told he was getting the full-time yeah, yeah. job and we never would have had the hinky era I think I forgot about blew that blew my mind do you have any idea why Josh Harris turned back on that
2: I, I do not I honestly don't I honestly don't I wish I knew I would have put it in if I knew right I honestly I honestly don't I thought that was a great and you guys are the first people probably because you're the first people I'm speaking to who care about Tony DeLeo um, <laughs> 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 like that—that that, that did not come up on the uh, Howard Beck podcast. Tony DeLeo's future with the Sixers. Um,
1: Tony DeLayo, s- sneaky good coach in the twenty or er, two thousand nine ten season. Was he okay?
0: He, okay. Uh, yeah, he learned. What he was a head coach over in Germany, I think, was his his thing before then.
2: That's funny. They did a good job. No,
0: not greatest GM though. His his team was going to be built around Thad and Al Horford was not Al Horford. Al Jefferson. Al Jefferson was a prized free agent they were going to get, and that was a perfect way to forty one wins.
2: Um, well I don't know like I know I found it fascinating that like Harris and Blitzer they had DeLeo and Th- Rod Thorne that like Courtney Whitty, who was another longtime executive for them like they were kind of shuttling up to um, Collins a little bit too they would be like shuttling up to New York City taking the train up to New York City like once a week to sort of pitch their vision on the Sixers and yeah, DeLeo, all I know is DeLeo was told he was going to get to be a job. He was excited. And then one day he was cold. That, never mind. <laughs> what happened between then? I mean, we know the Sixers had spoken to Sam Hinkie the year before, right? Um, I think Pablo Torre was the first to report that, right, in that feature. Well, I shouldn't say the first, yep. but the most notable to report that. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah. What, what, like, what change in those decisions? I, I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. I don't. I do not know. But yeah, I did find that fascinating that like Tony Delia was excited and ready to take over, and then uh, he got a call saying we're going in a different direction.
1: The Danny Ferry what if was another one. Which one? Because he was which the 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 yeah, first time or the second time?
0: What back then, and then also he was going to be co side by side with Hinky. Mm-hmm. That's the one I'm talking about. The second one.
1: Yeah, they tried. So they think, legitimately tried. It yeah.
0: Like it seemed like of the possibilities. That was the one Hinky was most receptive to.
2: He was like, open. He was open to, and I don't think he was thrilled. He was like they spoke right. He was like he like they had legitimate conversations about that, like about how would this work. And again, org charts but going through and they, they the problem is they spoke for too long. And it took too long. That was one of the problems. Why
0: do you why, why do you think that was? Was um, that just Hinky's hesitancy? I think to yeah, yeah, ironing think, it
2: out. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you're like we you know Sam, right? Like he's gonna ask him building yeah. questions. He's gonna want these things figured out. Um, he wasn't. It wasn't like he was thrilled about it, right? It wasn't like this is great. So you, you're gonna get those things figured out. But he was. He was open to it, right? He was not open to working with Brian. He knew being a co GM with Brian, working under Jerry, is not being a co GM with Danny Ferry. He was open to it. Brett Brown was like he had kind of connected Danny Ferry because he wanted. He thought it could work. Um, Ferry and Hinky have a good. Like, you know, I was told they 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 had weren't friends, but they, you know, good professional relationship. They respected each other. So, no, that was a legit thing. And Harris was into Ferry. You know, Harris had tried hiring Ferry. I forget what year it was, 2012, 2013, whichever, back then as well. So, no, that was a legit possibility.
0: You almost wonder, you know, because Brian, I think, was interviewing for the Nets GM job. Yeah, that's it, right? If he had gotten that and maybe they had a little more time to iron out Mm -hmm. the details of the Ferry, Hinky, co-GM, how things would have turned out. Yeah, for
2: sure. That was it, right. Brian was passed over at the last minute, and I guess he figured his last chance to be in would be the Sixers, and even if it's nepotism and he's afraid of that, if they win a championship, he wouldn't matter, right? I think that was kind of the uh, the, re- the line of thought there.
0: All right, so two other things, and then we'll let you go. Sure. And this one isn't really a question. You're just adding sort of things stated. right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but the Sixers were real close to losing Brett Brown because they didn't want to give him a fourth year on the initial contract. You know, I guess just do you, like, I think the way you explain, explained it is that these private equity guys weren't typically used to giving out long-term deals, especially on assets that weren't performing. Mm-hmm. Do you think they were close to, like, I, it, they turned around right away and, and added that fourth year, right? But do you think, like, what did it take for them to agree to that?
2: For which one? In terms of Brett when he was first brought in?
0: Right. The first four-year deal. Yep.
2: That you know what? I don't. I don't know the answer. Like I'll, I'll preface that, which I guess you're not supposed to say when you're being asked about a book you wrote. But <laughs> no, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I do think it was just. I think they just thought Brett was the perfect guy. I really think that's what it was, and that's what Sam thought. And I think you know, being the optimistic guy, the player development background, um, the the Josh Harris and them. One of the reasons they went for Danny Ferry, right? They kind of had a hard-on for the Spurs. <laughs> um, like, they wanted, like, the, you know, give us that, which a lot of teams did and do, right? You know, point to the team that's successful and say, we want that. So I think that was part of it. Um, the other coach is, like, I'm trying to remember the other guys. It was, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, and I, He's in the book, too. What The guy, he works for the Raptors now. He's an assistant. He was with the Bulls then. Uh, I can't remember. Adrian Griffin. Thank you. Right, him. Uh, Atkinson was close to it. Atkinson was close to getting that job. That would have been interesting. You could see why. So you could, cl- and it's clearly a type there, right? But I think they just thought Brett was the guy, the perfect guy for them. So I guess why not cough up the other year? That would be my guess. But I don't like in terms of what the actual breaking point was in the negotiations. I don't know. Maybe they just, maybe Brett just did a good job.
0: What was last?
2: Don't make, don't make me go back to my family. Keep asking me questions.
1: <laughs> I like to note that Josh Harris didn't like the PR that Michael Rubin gets for chipping in ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah. That that seemed relevant now. <laughs> yeah, guess, it's,
2: yeah, it's great. Uh, I love that. I love that stuff. Just a bunch of you, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You just, yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess just drawing from the, the the second coming chapter, you know, you have have Embiid who went from short of this quiet unsure of himself person who didn't think he belonged to be or deserved to be a top pick to now sort of like this alpha dog, supremely confident, like I am you need to draft me Griff. How mm-hmm. do you think that sort of played out over the years? Like what can you tell us about Joel's growth as sort of like the confidence within himself to become who he is now?
2: Um, that's a good question, right? Because at first I think it just I mean he really he started realizing how good he was right which that took a little bit because i think came you know you guys know this and people listening know but basketball he started late um it came to him quickly but even if it comes to you quickly like you still you know there's stories about him being his first practices and like not being so overwhelmed whether in high school whether at kansas um happened both times right um his first practice or his first time playing in cameroon all of it so you know you pick up the game fast but it's still overwhelming um so i think realizing how good he was getting press like you know being on the cover of slam magazine and I'm not just shouting them out because I used to work for them, but just because like that stuff matters and you see the press and Drake's and texting you or whatever, shouting you out on Twitter. I guess it wasn't Instagram back then. Right. Um, I started just kind of coming with that. Um, Yeah, and like the stories that he started like shimmying and dancing in high school, you know, during dunks or kind of going at teammates a little bit and talking smack to them. So, that's clearly part of his personality. He's a really interesting dichotomy where just, you know, he's this introvert and shy and also completely, you know, confident and can trash talk. It's like a funny mix. Yeah. and then, yeah, and then you get to now and, like, I think he learned quickly how much power he has in the organization. And, you know, I'm kind of fast-forwarding there, but it's... Which is funny, right? It takes a lot of... It's It's kind of interesting how that happened quickly considering he was out for a couple of years and they weren't very good. Um, but he learned really fast that he was, you know, he was in charge. As per, probably, like, even before getting the contract, once he got the contract, that was really it, right? So sometimes that can be used to good, like helping some guys, some uh, Sixers employees not get salaries cut right that can be helpful and good job by him sometimes it's not great you know where his you know his conditioning is um not perfect shall we say
0: not perfect <laughs> boy i want you to write my book
2: <laughs> it's uh i'm always where i always feel like i'm you know i, I tell the chick-fil-a story and then i always feel like i'm required to add a representative for Joel and b declined commenter said that he the, the chick-fil-a was not for him you know the, <laughs>
1: We won't give you anything except the Chick Fil A is not true, didn't it! <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating, right? It's a fascinating growth. It really is the idea of how he went so quickly, not just in terms of being good, but like you said, just understanding how great he was and how much power he could, we- how much power he had, and how to wield it.
0: Well, I think that's uh, I think that's about all I have there, Rich.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's about all I have too. Yaron, Do you like getting to say? Um, wherever books are sold now that you are i do
2: but i've added now you know like i have my pandemic ad like wherever books are sold including ebooks where you can just get it delivered you know or uh, audiobook if you want to hear my lovely voice serenade you with my words oh you did Uh, your own audiobook yeah it was awful man i mean get it get it, definitely (laughs) i hate
0: my voice way too much to do my own audio me me i'm
2: definitely buying that it was the it was one of the hardest things i'm not even exaggerating and i know like that sounds ridiculous it was so hard it was so hard um yeah wherever books are sold exactly
0: well, thank you very much. You should go out there and buy Tanking to the Top uh, wherever books are sold. <laughs> if for no other reason so you can get the detailed play-by-play of Joel Embiid's Workout with the Cavs, which was fantastic.
1: Awesome.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: You're on. you did a really good job with this book. I was sort of hoping that it was shit. Um, <laughs> you did well. You did, as somebody who was in the middle of all of this, I learned a lot.
2: Uh, uh, That's the greatest compliment is, I can get So I appreciate you, it truly You painted
0: a good picture of a, a an era That is a little bit tough to really Really grasp A lot of great details in there A lot of interesting period of the Sixers history And you were a good person to write it So thank you for jumping on And we hope the book sells well
2: No I appreciate it guys truly Thank you for uh, I appreciate you welcoming me in last year um, That was nice um, But no, I appreciate it truly Thank you
0: Yeah No I mean I mean, look You're perfectly clear Like we're writing books about the same topic Yep, and I. I not I guess, me. I'm
1: not writing any damn book. <laughs> <laughs> Way too much work. Are you kidding People me? People
0: ask me, "Am I still writing it?" Yeah, I'm still writing. I'm just taking. I'm taking the hinky approach. You know, my my secret weapon is that I don't care about time or due dates. And.
2: I've told you, so you're the Daniel Day Lewis of the process book writing. You're just method acting the whole thing.
0: Like I said, uh, <laughs> frankly, I was hoping it was shit, but it wasn't. So go out and buy it, and I give, <laughs> that, I give my recommendation without any reservations.
2: I'm gonna. That's gonna be the new blurb. Thanks. <laughs> I hoped. I hoped it was shit, but, but it, it wasn't. wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is great. That is No, perfect. you can use
0: that. You can tell your editor on the second reprint that uh, you I will, can use that. That was good. That was good. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. And again, thanks for jumping on, and best of luck, guys. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you.